Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Arguably the two most important verses in the most important letter ever written. And I don't have a whole lot of time. They say, start with a joke or a quip or a story to break the ice. But someone once said, who brought the ice? Hopefully you already thought out. <laughs> Romans 1, 16 and 17. You ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come humbly, eager, expectantly, ready to hear your word, ready to obey, ready to be used for your glory and for others' good. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says for. Whenever you see a word for or therefore, you got to look at and, and say, why is it there? What does it say before? Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says that I'm obligated both to the barbarians and to the Greek, to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation. I have a debt of gratitude to God, and that's, rem that's remitted to man. I, I, I pay my, my gratitude debt to God, to man. I, I go out and I, I preach the gospel to people, to barbarians and to Greeks, the sophisticated and, and, and those that are not, and to the, to the intelligent and those that are foolish by the world's standards because the, the ground at the cross is level. And so Paul says, for I am eager, or uh, he, says, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for... Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. What does it mean to be ashamed of something? Maybe you have been ashamed of the way that your children or your parents have acted in public, right? And, and, and you're in a grocery store or you're at an amusement park and your children are acting in a way that, that causes you to be humiliated, or your parents cause you that, and what do you do? You want to put a little distance between them, right? Uh, the other night, my daughter had a, a little sleepover with some friends, and, and they did some makeup, and then we went to Walmart, and I put some distance between myself and them, <laughs> because I was ashamed. It was actually kind of sweet, but you put some distance between you and, and the thing that you're ashamed of, you disavow it, you, maybe you reject it. Depending on how ashamed of it you are, you reject it, or at the very least, you minimize its importance and significance and place in your life. So to be ashamed of the gospel is to distance yourself from it. I think in the church that some people are ashamed of the gospel and it looks like 
believing that they no longer need it. I believed the gospel. Let's move on. Uh, let's let's pros, progress beyond it. But the reality is that you never progress beyond the gospel. The gospel is everything. But I think that some people are ashamed of it. You know, I think the gospel continually reminds us of how bad we really are and how good Christ really is. And people that are ashamed of the gospel don't like to hear that. They don't want to be told that even though they're Christian, that they are still sinning, that they're still wicked in their hearts. The closer you get to Christ, the more keenly aware, the more acutely aware you become of your own depravity. And, and people feel ashamed of that, and so they distance themselves. Teach us something different. We want to hear something else. I think also a way to be ashamed of the gospel is to functionally live as a universalist. I am shocked at the findings of the Ligonier poll that just came out this year that found that 65% of evangelicals believe that man is born inherently good. That 56% of evangelicals believe that all roads lead to God. You might, if you're ashamed of the gospel, you might say something like, I believe the gospel. The gospel is for me. That's my truth. But how can I say that everyone should believe the gospel? I don't want to force my religion on someone else. I, I don't want to shove my religion down someone else's throat. That is what it looks like to be ashamed of the gospel. Because as we will see in just a moment, the gospel is exclusive. The gospel says that Jesus is not a way to the Father. That Jesus is not a solution to man's problem, but that he is the solution to man's problem. Brothers and sisters, I think that functional universalism is a major problem in the church, including in the evangelical church. 65% believe that man is born inherently good, which means what they believe is that for the most part, only the really bad people who commit to a life of evil really go to hell. And so therefore, only they need Jesus because everyone else is good already. But what does the Bible teach us plainly? There is no one righteous, no, not one. None seeks for God. Paul says he's not ashamed. Does that sound like an understatement to you? Paul was not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed. That's like the understatement par excellence, it, it, like the chief understatement, maybe the, the, the greatest understatement ever uttered. Paul was beaten. Paul was stoned. Paul was shipwrecked. 
Paul was snake-bitten. Paul was in prison. Paul was mocked. Paul was left nearly for dead and got up and went back into the city (laughs) and preached the gospel again. Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome where ultimately he would be beheaded, we believe, for Christ. No, Paul was not ashamed. Far from it. Paul was not ashamed. He was not ashamed to say, everyone is a sinner, everyone will die, everyone will face judgment, and everyone needs Christ. He was not ashamed to to go to the intellects of the modern cities of Athens and Rome and to preach to the intellects to the academics, to the philosophers. That the only way that a person can be made right with God and escape his just wrath is by faith in Jesus Christ. No, he was not ashamed to say these things. Why? Why would he not be ashamed of the gospel? For or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation. That word power is the word dunamis. Dunamis is also the word that we translate to dynamite. Think about dynamite. And it's also the word that we translate to dynamic. What does fundamentally, what does dynamite do? Dynamite, it explodes. And in its explosion, the the purpose of the explosion of dynamite is to change things. To take a large rock and make it into a million tiny rocks. To take the side of a mountain and make it into four faces of dead presidents. To make this mountain a tunnel or pass. Dynamite changes things. The opposite of dynamic is what? In the engineers? Static. In other words, stasis. Stable. Does not change. Does not move. In our sin, we are dead. In our sin, we will not change until something dynamic acts upon it. That rock that's been there, that mountain that has been there, does not change, at least relatively speaking. It does not change. It's static. Until something dynamic is introduced to it called dynamite. And then that static thing is changed. Jeremiah talks about the condition of the human heart. And what does he say? This is God speaking to us through his prophet Jeremiah. And he says, I will replace your heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And, and, And what does he use to break up that heart of stone? The dynamic gospel that changes everything. What does it change? Everything. You were dead in sin, 
and you were made alive in Christ. You were an object of God's wrath, and you have been made a child of God. You were at enmity with God, and you are now at peace with God. Jesus said that you were condemned already, and brother and sister, that is a static condition. You do not change your state until this dynamic power of the gospel saved you from condemnation. And now, brother and sister, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Amen? The gospel is the power of God. It changes everything. It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation is deliverance from God's just wrath. Do you know that God is justified in His wrath toward sinners? People think, well, how could a loving God send people to hell for eternity? That's a long time. I would never punish someone forever for sinning against me. Well, you are finite and God is not. And you sin against an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous God, which means that there's an infinite punishment and an infinite debt to be paid. And salvation is deliverance from that condemnation. Paul says it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus was ethnically a Jew. Jesus was the descendant of King David, who was the descendant of Abraham, who's the father of the Jews. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies and Jewish covenants. The gospel was preached first to the Jews. It was prophesied through the prophets. It was promised to the kings. Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king who sits enthroned upon King David's throne forever. He's the one that the Jews were looking for. And we should pray that their eyes would be opened and they would see that Jesus is Messiah. But the promise goes beyond Abraham. Where was the very first promise of the gospel? Genesis 3.15, made to Adam and Eve, the mother and father of all mankind. This separation by sin, this death that you have incurred, will not always be this way. I will send the seed of woman, to crush the head of Satan. So Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Savior of the Jews and of the Greeks as well. Now, if you were Greek, that would be a, a pretty offensive way to word that because Greeks were first in everything. But Paul makes it clear that the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. 
Verse 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Brother and sister, the question that you must wrestle with is how is it possible that an infinite, infinitely holy God could allow sinful people to draw near to Him and He not be changed? And He not become like us? How could an infinitely holy God just ignore the sins of sinful people and not Himself become sinful? Is by the gospel. By the sending of His Son. He is both just or righteous or holy and the justifier of those who have faith in His Son. You see, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. To take upon Himself as a substitute for you. Your debt is real. You have a sin debt to God and Jesus satisfied that debt on your behalf. God is both just and the justifier. He's both righteous and He makes righteous. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 speaks of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and just is he. The gospel is the fulfillment of all the promises that our faithful and just God declared and spoke through the prophets. The gospel is the consummation. It's the fulfillment. It reveals to us that our God is faithful. He is a promise-keeping God. He made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and through the prophets, and He fulfills those promises through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel reveals to us, it puts on display that our God is a covenant-keeping God. And that should give us great assurance that the promises that remain, i.e. that Jesus is going to come back for us, that His sacrifice is sufficient for us, that we really are adopted into the family of God, that these promises are true and will always be true. The gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. It reveals to us His holy character. It's everything that has to do with the redemption of mankind. That is God's purpose and plan in the world is to draw people back to Himself. And He is righteous and He is just to do that. I think about 1 John 1.9 where John says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He, he, he will keep His promise He's trustworthy, but it's also right for him to do that. 
Because the agreement that he made with his son is you will atone for their sin and I will wipe it away. Our God is faithful. Our God is righteous. For it says, or as it is written, the righteous shall live, I'm sorry, revealed from faith, for faith. What does that mean, from faith, for faith? Our God is faithful. It began in faith. Where, where, do, we, where do we get the gospel? Where do we get the promises? And, and, and why, how can we uh, hold on to them? Because our God is faithful. It began, it came from faith. God is faithful. Even if we're not faithful, he's faithful. It's from faith and for faith faith. How are we saved? Paul tells us the righteous shall live by faith. Now that word live in the Hebrew means both life and salvation. If you go back to Genesis and the curse or or the, the promise of the curse, the warning to Adam, he says, do not eat of this, the fruit of this tree or you will die. And Satan rightly interpreted, he doesn't mean literal physical death. He means you're going to lose life in your soul. You're going to stop living with the Lord. Life is going to die in you. Though you breathe, you're not going to be alive, and you're going to spiritually die when you pass. Ultimately, you will die physically, and you're spiritually dead. In the same way, life is both life here and now and life eternal, salvation from the wrath of God. So when Paul says that the righteous shall live by faith, we can say the way that Luther came to understand this, this verse is what changed everything for Martin Luther and therefore, brother and sister, for you. Who knows but that if Martin Luther had not been converted and and gone through the the protest with the Catholic Church that you and I would not be saying, Hail Mary, and I'd be a priest. This is what wakened Luther from his slumber. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther hated this verse. He hated it. Because the way he read it was, if you are really righteous, if, if you are right with God, then your life is faithful, and you will do the, the right things, and, and you'll, you'll check all the blocks, and you'll be a good person. And as he was wrestling with this, he stumbled upon Augustine's letters that called this righteousness an alien righteousness. In other words, outside of yourself. And it was like an aha moment for Luther, and he realized this righteousness by which we live, by faith, is not our righteousness. It is God's righteousness that he gives us as a gift by faith. And so Luther would interpret this, by faith shall the righteous live. By faith shall the righteous be saved, and by faith shall the righteous 
continually live following their Lord. And Paul will, will speak to both of these elements. We are saved by grace through faith. By faith, the righteous, those who are made righteous in Christ, shall be saved. And Paul will address how we, the faithful, we, the righteous, are called to live by faith. That our lives should reflect, by faith, the righteousness that God has given to us. So both save by faith and live or walk by faith. Paul says in Philippians 3.9, he, he speaks of righteousness. He says, righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I wish that, that Martin Luther had seen, had been studying Philippians 3.9 at the same time he was studying Romans 1. Where does righteousness come from? Not in my desire to do good. I, I, I am static in my sin. And until the power of the gospel comes, nothing changes. But when the power of the gospel comes, then everything changes. And I am made righteous. He continues, or he, in another letter in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might what? Become the righteousness of God. Not that in following him that we would make ourselves righteous like him. He became our sin so that we could become his righteousness, that word become, is passive, so that you would become. Martin Luther says that it's the passive righteousness by which God makes us righteous by faith. It is from faith, God's faithfulness in his righteousness. He's faithful, and he keeps his promises, and the gospel is the fulfillment of the promise, and it's for faith. It's for you and I to live, to be saved, and to live by faith. Man's chief problem is sin, and his chief need is salvation. And we are saved, brothers and sisters, by faith, not by works, not by being a good person, not by doing more righteous or pious things than our neighbor, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. There is only one way to be saved. Paul was not ashamed of this gospel, even though it was exclusive. And I'll be honest with you, there are times where it feels hard to say to someone that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus said that in John 14, 6. If you believe Jesus, then you must believe Jesus. You can't say, well, I believe Jesus, but I don't believe that. Do you see why I say it's exclusive? You cannot 
believe that all roads lead to Jesus and think, or, or to God, and think that you yourself have believed the gospel. Because Jesus said, I am the way. And when a person finally comes to understand that the only way I am saved, the only way that I am set free from the condemnation for my sin is by faith in Jesus, it completely dispels any notion that anyone else can get there any other way. Because if someone else could get there any other way, then I could get there any other way. And if I could get there any other way, then I don't believe Jesus. Man's chief problem is sin. No one has ever been saved by works of righteousness, only by grace through faith. 150,000 people will die today around the world. Between 150,000 and 170,000 people, that equates to two people every second. And I did this back in uh, August when we began this series on my sermon on sin, and it's this. A soul is dying and meeting Jesus or meeting God every second of every minute, of every hour, of every single day, 150,000 people take their last breath and they meet their maker. And Jesus said, wide is the path that leads to destruction and many will find it. And narrow is the path that leads to eternal life and few will find it. 150,000 people die every day most do not know Jesus. Pause for a second. Most of these people will enter into eternity in judgment for their sin. Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way. Brother and sister, if you believe the gospel, then you know the way that leads to eternal life. And you could tell those people the way. And the reality is that you know the way because someone else told you the way. What will you do with that knowledge? Back in December, I asked Pastor Andy to go away for a week to get alone with the Lord and to return uh, to Wildwood with a strategy for how our missions effort, our missions program was going to uh, advance the kingdom, how, how we were going to effectively take the gospel to the nations. He, he went away, he spent time with the Lord, he came back with much trepidation, with much trembling, with an audacious, audacious strategy that he's going to unfold for you in our business meeting 
But let me tell you that it was through fear and trembling that he presented it to the elders, and it was in fear and trembling that the elders, after six months of prayer and consideration, said, Andy, we agree with you. But as a result of that conversation and, and many conversations and much prayer, what happened was Andy did not just bring back a strategy for our missions program, the, the missions effort, the line item, the, the, the committee, the missionaries that we send out, but he, he came back with what ultimately became a vision for mission of the church. There's a clear distinction between the mission of the church and missions, which is part of the mission of the church, but not the fullness thereof. So I want to take the, the remaining moments that I have here and, and lay out for you what I am convic- uh, convinced and convicted the Lord would have be the vision of Wildwood henceforth. It's the result of months of prayer, of conversation with the elders and the staff, the missions committee. We have chewed on this, we have wrestled on this, and we believe that this is what the Lord would have us pursue. We believe this is the direction the Lord would have us to go, that we, Wildwood Church, would get radically missional. Radically missional. What do I mean by that? I mean that we would be compelled by Romans 15, 21. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. That it is our passion, that it is what we eat, breathe, and sleep, a passion to see those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And those people exist where? Right here, everywhere around us, in our homes, in our places of business, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our networks, and yes, in every nation around the world. I want to direct your attention here to a graphic that we have put together to help articulate the mission. So everything you see on the screen is the mission of Wildwood. These icons and these terms should not be new to you. You probably have seen them around on the, on the banners outside, the, the, the uh, uh, pallet wood banners outside. You've seen them in the bulletin. But this is the mission of the church. This is what we're called to do. And it's really nothing but the Great Commission. Right? I want you to see the Great Commission here. Let's go to the next slide, Jacob. You see how this is just the Great Commission. Jesus says, as you go into all the nations, make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, including to go into the nations and make disciples. It's cyclical. It's circular. It continues forever and ever until Jesus says, I am with you until the end of the age. Has Jesus come back? Is the age ended? No then this remains the mission of every single church and every single Christian. It's the Great Commission. What does it say? uh, Jacob, can you bring up Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has imperium, all authority, so he can send his people out every place. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. You want, to be, you want Jesus with you? You want to be with Jesus? Be on mission. Do what he told you to do. As you go into the nations, wherever you go, make disciples and teach those disciples to obey Jesus to include the command to go into the world and make disciples and teach them to obey. On and on and on it goes. And people leading up to your conversion were faithful. And the question is, will you be faithful? Please, Wildwood, do not let the buck stop with you. Let's go back to that mission slide, Jacob. I want to ex explain just a couple of things here. So if we look at this graphic here, okay, if we look at the graphic, you see two things, send and equip. The, this is the strategy for how we achieve the mission. So we have the mission statement, which is we exist to connect people to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to others through discipleship, to the church, through partnership, and to purpose through service. That's the mission statement. We, we, we preach the gospel, we make disciples, we teach them, we connect them, and we send them out. So we have here, we see send and equip. That's the strategy. That's how we do it. Let's talk about those two terms there, equip. That's a doctrinal term that comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 13. Let's look at that. And he gave the apostles, okay, you can kind of see that. That's fine, leave that up. There we go. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's the job of elders? To equip the saints. Who's the saints? Raise your hand if you're a saint. If you're in Christ, your hand should be up. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Our job is to teach the word and equip you and encourage you and to give you what you need to do the work of ministry. Okay. So what does equipping look like? Let's go back to that mission slide, Jacob. Equipping looks like connecting people to discipleship, to others. So how do we do that? Connect groups, adult Bible fellowships, triads, which is, which is three people getting together, usually with one discipler, one person, and two people being discipled. Triads. Family worship, where heads of households are discipling their children. Weekday Bible studies. When you think about equip, think about everything that we do focused inward, focused on ourselves. Fellowships, fellowship meals, why are they important? Because when you're out fighting in the world, when you're out waging war in the spiritual world, and you come back, you need to know that you're part of a team, you're part of a family, you're part of a body, you're part of something bigger than you, and you need to be encouraged and built up. And so fellowships count. But if, but if the things that we do here are not purposed on sending out, then everything we do within is nothing but socializing. If you're not going out to fight the war, then coming back in is just getting together to have a good time or to get smarter. So we equip people in order to send them out. Consider yourselves, if you're in Christ, a sent missionary the moment you drive off this parking lot. Wherever you go, as you go into the nations, make disciples there. Wherever the Lord has you, wherever you're standing, that is mission field. Every member a missionary. 
every member a missionary. This church is a body, Paul says. The church is a body. And the body has many members. And every member has a function. Brother and sister, you are a missionary. Consider yourselves hereby sent out. Because it's true. And we send out. So our discipleship process of of equipping is not so that we get smarter or that we have more friends and have a social life, though those things are good, but rather so that we will be sent out into the world living with a heart of service because Jesus said that I came to serve and not to be served. And so the height of discipleship is not greater knowledge, but greater service. So we go out into the world to serve people in order to save them. Now, before you level the charge of heresy, I know that you and I don't save people. God saves people. But I speak in the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's go there, Jacob. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a what? A servant of all that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that my all, by all means I might save. That's the sense that I'm getting at. God saves, but God uses you and me to do it. We equip here in order to send out. And we send out in order for you to take the gospel to make disciples, ultimately that you would begin equipping. We equip to send, and we send to equip. And on and on and on it goes. And the elders and I have a heart that as we look at the balance, let's go back to that slide one more time, Jacob, that, we, that, that the heart, or the, excuse me, that the balance of this strategy of equipping and sending is weighted more heavily on sending than on equipping. That more of our time, energy, focus, and funding goes to sending, goes to reaching the lost people all around us and in every nation than in equipping the saints. We have a strategy. Pastor Andrew will lay that out. It's incremental. It's achievable by God's Grace, we believe he gave us the vision. We believe he will help us fulfill it. And I believe that the Lord's, the Lord's uh, blessing of paying off the debt ought to be in every one of our minds an exclamation point. God is in this. Trust God. This felt like, for me and for the rest of the elders, like Peter being invited to step out onto the waves. And I'm asking you and inviting you also to step out of the boat onto the waves, and to keep your eyes on Christ. Amen? You folks did not listen quickly enough, and now we are behind. (laughs) It's okay. All right. Folks, my invitation to you is, will you join me in living radically missional, being compelled that those who have never seen, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Jesus was radically missional. 
That's an understatement. Maybe that's the greatest understatement of all time. Jesus was radically missional. He stepped out of heaven, condescended to become human, and then died for our sin. Are you happy to receive Jesus' radically missional sacrifice, but reluctant to give? I invite you to let that be your heart's prayer and reflection. Now, as we turn our attention to communion, I invite the worship team to return to the stage. Reflect, brothers and sisters. Are you happy to receive Jesus' radically missional life, but reluctant to give? My question is, are you ashamed of the gospel? Or can you say, like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our hope, our soon returning King, King of love, who gave his life for us that we might have life with you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live radically missional, that we would equip and we would send, and we would send to equip, that every member of our church views themselves, conceives of themselves as a sent missionary wherever they go to make disciples there. By your grace, through your help, Holy Spirit, we need you. We can't do it without you. To you be all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.